0: Well, don't take your Bibles and turn to Romans, even though uh, it says we're supposed to be in Romans this morning. Um, We will use the Bible, though. Didn't want to make that unclear. (laughs) It's like, oh, we're not going to use our Bibles today. You can just put them away. Um, No, over the past uh, several weeks, I have been thinking and talking a lot about marriage. Uh, Our uh, half-timers... equipping class, equipping hour, has been going through uh, the material called Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas, who is just a very insightful guy when it comes to talking about what if God never intended marriage to make us happy but holy. Let's just close in prayer. That's a great thought, right? And uh, while I've not been attending that class, um, I've been kind of living vicariously through that material because I just know how vital it is. In fact, Kelly and I are uh, using a devotion that Gary Thomas wrote called Devotions for uh, Married Couples, I think it's called, um, but uh, man, every one that we've read so far is just right on the money, and it's exactly where we're at and what we need to hear, and so I would highly commend that to you. That, in fact, that was one of the resources that was recommended at our Art of Marriage conference um, this weekend, uh, Devotions for Married Couples by Gary Thomas. A couple weeks ago, we talked about marriage as men uh, in our uh, reading through of the disciplines of a godly man. There was a chapter on the discipline of marriage, and so we had an opportunity to talk about that. And then the next week, none of the guys showed up because it was Valentine's Day and they were putting it into practice. And uh, so they were taking their wives out on Wednesday night, and and, uh, we uh, hopefully all had a chance to think about marriage and love and relationship this last week, uh, celebrating Valentine's Day. And then... Uh, this last um, a couple of days, I guess the last uh, 24 hours, um, uh, Kel and I, a- along with other uh, couples from our church and um, couples from our community, um, all as far away as Dallas were here uh, for this Art of Marriage conference. And uh, hey, where'd they go? Where's Mike and Michelle? Where are you guys? There's Mike right there. Game ball, man. Appreciate so much what you guys do. What a, what a tremendous Ministry that is. Uh, You guys put that on. There's no pastor uh, that's involved in any of that. It's you guys put that on, and it's so amazing to watch how God uses that to really minister to couples. I had one, a couple that uh, doesn't go to our church, uh, come up to me after the conference is over and just say, um, Hey, would you, uh, are you the pastor? I said, Yes, sir. And he said, Would you mind signing our our legacy commitment, and we had a little uh, sheet of paper, a little contract, if you will, a covenant that we were all to sign afterwards about we want to leave a lasting legacy uh, to the next generation through our marriages and our example, and uh, just a really touching moment, but here was a couple who openly admitted that they came because they were struggling in their marriage, they had some issues that they needed to work on, and, and uh, that uh, for the first time, he said, I really actually listened uh, and heard what I needed to hear, and would you sign this because we want to leave this legacy for our our kids and our grandkids and so just a wonderful event and so um, all that to say i 've just been um, had marriage on my mind, and uh, frankly didn 't want to stop marinating on this subject of marriage um, when uh, we were getting to we got up to leave yesterday. Um, Someone commented to me that they knew I was going to go home and continue to study and finish up uh, my sermon for uh, this morning. And, um, and when I got in the car, I told Kelly, you know, I, I just don't feel like preaching on Paul shattering the, the, the false security of the Jews, <laughs> which is an important subject. And we'll get to that, Lord willing, next week. But I just I want to preach on marriage. And I guess it's because I think that marriage is something that you cannot talk or think about enough. And one of the main uh, passions that I have as a pastor, one of the main goals of our church is to support and to strengthen marriage. Because it goes without saying that marriage has fallen on hard times, has it not? I mean, we live in a culture that no longer honors and upholds God's design for marriage. And we never thought it would get to this, but we all know that marriage is no longer between a man and a woman. And we have gotten used to seeing guys with guys and girls with girls. And, and of course the media is doing everything they can to promote that as normal, as natural. And something that we should not just accept, but celebrate. Because of course it's it's love, as long as it's love, what does it matter? We know that marriage is no longer till death do us part, but till things don't work out, or till someone else better comes along. Half the people that get married get divorced. It's just the way it is. And sadly, many of those who remain married are divorced emotionally, mentally, merely sharing the same address or living their own separate lives, doing their own thing. Others, to avoid the commitment and complications of marriage, are choosing just to live together and come and go as they please, which just a few years ago, the statistics in America said there's more couples living together in our country than there are married. Just to show the cultural shift. An increasing number of people are content just to live on their own and have multiple friends with benefits. And so as we see the institution of marriage crumbling all around us, the church and us as Christians need to continue to faithfully defend and and model the truth of what the Bible teaches about marriage. And when we understand as Christians that marriage was intended by God, and intentionally embedded in human culture to be a testimony or illustration of the gospel, why should we wonder that Satan has done everything in his power to destroy it? It's not so much about destroying marriage as it is destroying the gospel. And the most vivid example or illustration of the gospel that we have anywhere in our society. One of my favorite pastoral responsibilities is to form wedding ceremonies because I get a, a front row seat to the gospel. And I get to share the gospel as this couple shows the gospel as they get married. And I know you've all attended a wedding before. And I'm sure you've noticed that there, there's something magical, there's something mystical even mysterious, even heavenly about the bride and the groom at the wedding ceremony. Have you ever wondered why? It's because they are acting out a divine parable that depicts the relationship between God and us, or more specifically, between his son Jesus and the church. You see, in eternity past, God... Sovereignly planned in planned out that his son would die for all those that he had graciously chosen out of damned doomed humanity to be saved and spend eternity with him in heaven and so in order to to illustrate this profound mystery hidden in the mind of God, God created Adam and Eve and ordained the marriage relationship to be this beautiful picture of the unconditional unrelenting, unending love that Christ has for his church, for his bride. And we see this concept throughout the Bible, that God compares his relationship with his people to a bride and groom, to a husband and wife. For example, in the Old Testament, the relationship between God and his people Israel is expressed in these words, Isaiah 62.5. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. And in Hosea chapter 2, which was an amazing uh, picture, illustration of God's faithful love to unfaithful Israel. Here was uh, God raising up the prophet Hosea and telling him to marry essentially a prostitute, an adulteress. And it says in Hosea chapter 2, verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. In other words, God wanted to show the people of Israel how much he loved them, that he was willing to love them and remain faithful to them even when they were unfaithful to him. Well, in the New Testament, Jesus is likened to a groom and the church is likened to his bride. We see that in the Gospels in Matthew and John. Uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians eleven two, he said, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband. Paul was acting as if he is performing a wedding ceremony, ceremony be, be, uh, between the, the church of Corinth and, and Christ. And he says, I betrothed you to one husband that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. And we see this this imagery climax in the book of Revelation, where heaven is described as as this huge wedding feast when Christ's followers will be presented to him as a radiant bride in a white wendy gown. It's what we refer to as the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 9, listen to what it says. This is at the return of Christ. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, right blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Now, for us living here in the 21st century, I think we could miss, very easily miss, the the depth of meaning in this imagery throughout the Old and New Testament. And I think it's helpful just to know a little bit about Middle Eastern marriage customs during biblical times. Back then, getting married was a lot more of an elaborate process than it is today. The first stage, there were several stages. The first stage was betrothal. This was like the engagement But more binding, and the terms of marriage would be accepted in the presence of witnesses, and God's blessing was pronounced on the union, and from that day forward, the man and woman were considered legally married. But they were not to come together. Um, As you remember Joseph and Mary and the whole scandal of Jesus' birth, how did she get pregnant during this betrothal stage when they weren't to be together? Then there's a second stage, which was considered the interval stage uh, between the betrothal and the wedding feast, during which the groom would pay the dowry to the father, round up the goats, whatever they would give, right, the camels, and pay that dowry to the father of the bride, as well as make a place ready for him, for he and his bride to live, go build the house, uh, you know, till the field and get ready to provide for your new wife. And, And in the meantime, the bride would be preparing herself and adorning herself and waiting for the groom to arrive at her home with all of his friends singing and carrying torches. And then he would take her to where the wedding feast would be held. And that was the final stage. That was the banquet stage, which lasted one or two weeks. And it was just one big party celebrating the union of this man and this woman. Now consider the analogy here for us as Christians, that we have already been betrothed to Christ. He paid the dowry for us, if you will, with his own blood on the cross. He's gone away to prepare a place for us, as it says in John 14. And he's left us with an engagement ring, the Holy Spirit, that he promised to send and so we are in this interval stage as Christ's future bride, where we need to prepare ourselves and ready ourselves as we await his return, when he will come and take us to live with him forever in heaven. And on that glorious day, when Christ returns, we will stand before him as his perfect, sinless, holy bride, glorified, glorified. And enjoy a wedding feast that will last not just a week or two, but for all eternity. I imagine that these were some of the mystical, magical, mysterious images that were in Paul's mind when he was addressing the subject of marriage in his letter to the Ephesians. And I would like you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. This is a very familiar passage to all of us. I know this is probably the premier passage on marriage in the New Testament. Um, This is the passage that I always read at every wedding ceremony that I oversee. And because I know you're familiar with the majority of this text about wives submitting to their husbands, husbands loving their wives, I just want to zero in on the end of this Portion of uh, teaching on marriage and look at verses 31 through 33. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Paul writes, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. And that word mystery, by the way, should give all of us who are married, who sometimes find ourselves scratching our head going, how did I get myself into this situation? I don't get this. This is, seems frustrating. It seems like I'm not equipped to be in this kind of relationship, this marriage. There's, there's a lot of mystery in that, amen? And so there's, there's mystery involved in this marriage. This mystery is great, but notice he says, I'm speaking with reference to Christ in the church. Wait a minute, Paul, you just spent the last seven verses or so talking about wives submitting to their husbands, and and husbands loving their wives, and you talk about how this is what God ordained, uh, you know, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, that she shall become one flesh. You're referring back to the first wedding, a marriage in the Bible in Genesis chapter two. But then you throw this curveball at us and say, well, I'm really speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So was Paul talking about Christ in the church or was he talking about husbands and wives? Yes, is the right answer. Because notice verse 33, nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself and the wife must, also, must see to it that she respects her husband. And so he's talking about both. And you can't talk about husbands and wives, without talking about Christ and the church, because in some sense, they're one and the same. Christ and the church are the model for the husband and wife, and the husband and wife are to model the love between Christ and his church. You can't have one without the other. They're inseparably linked. And so that's why this passage, to me, is the key passage to read at every wedding ceremony. But as much as I like wedding ceremonies, there's something that I enjoy more than that. Something else that I do that I enjoy more than officiating the actual ceremony, and that's providing the premarital counseling for a couple who's uh, about to get married. And I would also say this, I, and this may seem strange to hear, but I also enjoy providing postmarital counseling to a couple who's about to get divorced premarital counseling for those who are about for the couples who are about to get married and then postmarital counseling for those couples who are about to get divorced you couldn't find anything as extreme as those two and after 20 years of of marriage counseling and more importantly almost 28 years of my own marriage th- there are some foundational Biblical principles that I think are essential in order for us to experience the kind of marriage that God intended for us. And I think the, the key to having a marriage that glorifies God and gratifies us, you okay with that? that? That ultimately marriage exists to glorify God, but he also gave it to us as a grace of life, a gift for us to enjoy. He expected us to, to draw pleasure from it and to get great satisfaction from this marriage relationship. So uh, the key to having a marriage that glorifies God and gratifies us, I think, is clearly understanding and, and faithfully applying these basic principles that God has graciously given to us in his Word. And God has used and continues to use my own marriage as a living laboratory to help me learn to appreciate these principles and to apply these principles in a, in a, in a greater way on a, on a deeper level. It, it dawned on me this week as I was having a conversation with a guy and uh, how we were just sharing some of the struggles that we have in our marriages. and and just kind of comparing notes and realizing no temptation has overtaken us, but that was just common to man, and we're all in this thing together, and, 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 I, and I said this. I said, you know, because it, it, it struck me at that moment, you know, that, that passage in Matthew 7 where it says, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And, and, and the, the best way to to be in the best position to help other people with their marriages is to be dealing with the sin in your own marriage. And, and so if, if, if I may be used by the Lord to help someone else see what they need to change to improve their marriage, it's, it's if God enables me to see what I need to change to improve my marriage. So it starts with me. For example... You know, a couple of weeks ago we got a chance to go to Colorado and do some skiing and snowboarding. And then, so we arrived in Denver and we got to the rental car place. And hey, I was feeling really good about this because I got this really good rate on this, you know, full-size sedan. Thinking, oh, this is great! I beat the rental car, you know, at their game. And you know, all these other things were so expensive. And I was like, man, I don't know how I got this rate, but I'm excited. And you know, normally I don't get excited about going to the rental car place, but I was excited because got this good deal. And so we got the car and we were loading up this Toyota Camry with our stuff and it had room for everybody and Jacob's snowboard stuff. And, and we're good to go until my lovely wife said, Hey, don't you think, uh, we need to have something like with four wheel drive, you know, cause we're going to be up in the mountains and it might snow. And, and, uh, and I'm thinking, well, I looked at the weather and it said like snow showers, one to three inches. I grew up in Massachusetts. I'm not really scared of driving in the snow. and It doesn't concern me. And I think we'll be good. And man, I don't want to pay the extra money for what I know they'll charge us. And well, anyway, I just, out of love for my wife, I went back in just to kind of see what it might cost us, right? Because the conversation after she came in and joined me in there became well, do you, are you more concerned about the money or the safety of your family? See, it kind of went deeper all of a sudden. I'm like, what, what does it have to do with anything? When have I ever put you guys in harm's way? I've always, you know, now we're having this, like, marriage crisis, you know, in front of the guy who's trying to rent us a car, and he's and of course, he sees blood in the water, right? He's going for it. He said, hey, listen, for just a couple hundred dollars more, I can get you in this, you know? And I'm just, speaking, I, I kind of feel my blood pressure rising here that I did not like the situation I was in, was I was feeling pressure uh, from my wife, I want to serve her, I want to love her, do I need to lead her now, and, or, or do, I, do I just need to defer to her now, and this guy ain't getting extra money from me, I already got this great deal, and I'm looking at the, my weather app at the same time, trying to figure out what is actually going to happen in the mountains, which you never know anyway, right, you could say this, and it's going to be this, and so, um, well, as you can imagine, we drove off um, with the four-wheel drive car. And um, I wasn't really happy, and I chose not to vent my anger. I just kind of clammed up and just kind of was quiet and driving to the hotel. And, and uh, we got there and um, checked in and got into the room, and Kelly pulls me inside and says, Honey, are you, are you right with me? I love it when she asks me that question. Are you right with me? Are you right with me? Are you okay with me? It seems like you're angry with me. I'm like, honey, I, I'm not angry. I mean, I didn't show any anger. And I was, well, honey, it was pretty obvious that you weren't happy with that situation. And I was like, well, I, I don't know. Maybe that's just your perception and, you know, trying to justify my, my actions. And so she went uh, in the other room. And, and so I figured, hey, I'm going to, we need a tiebreaker here. So who better than Jacob? Right? He's a guy. He's going to see my side. Right? He's going he's gonna to be the tiebreaker here. And so I said, hey, Jacob. I said, did, did you sense that I was, like, upset at all when, you know, that whole rental car thing, and, and um, <laughs> Jacob just really blunt and to the point. He's like, yeah, Dad, you seem kind of peeved. <laughs> I'm like, okay, Jacob, thanks for the creative vocabulary there. I haven't heard that word in a long time. So apparently he had heard me under my breath say something about overkill when I was loading the four-wheel drive thing and wasn't very <laughs> happy about having to do that, but... So anyway, we, the next morning, here I am confessing my sin to my family and, and uh, asking them to forgive me and for not responding in a Christ-like way. And, and so on the last day of our trip, as Jacob and I are leaving the, the mountain and it's just coming down like crazy snow, right? The freeway shut down over the pass and we got our four-wheel drive car. And I said to Jacob, I said, hey, Jacob, you ever heard a woman's intuition See, trying to, you know, God works all things together for good, right? So at least I can capitalize this, maybe teach him a lesson about woman's intuition, right? And so, have you ever heard a woman say, no, that was, well, listen, this, sometimes they just know. And, and, and that's the challenge about being a husband is you got to know, is, that, is, is this one of those times where they know something that I don't know, or do I just need to blow them off and do what I think we need to do? And no, you don't ever blow your wife off, but you just say, no, this is what we're going to do, right? But sometimes they're like, I, I told you so, right? And you're like, oh. Why didn't I get that intuition? Well, apparently that's why God gives you a wife, right? You get, it's, a, it's a package deal. You get the intuition with the wife, right? So anyway, we, were, we had a good conversation about woman's intuition, and sometimes you just got to trust your wife that they got this spidey sense thing, and I don't know how it works, but um, they just know. So all that to say, God is um, continuing to help me be sanctified, and it's very humbling, um, and embarrassing at times when you have to admit that you've messed up again. And, uh, but listen, I said this to the guys last week. If your kids have never heard you, hopefully it would be true of your wife, but if your kids have never heard you ask their forgiveness for anything, you're not a good dad. Because what is the point of being a dad? It's to be an example right, to them of who God is. And not that God needs to ask forgiveness for anything, but the point is we call our kids out all the time. Hey, 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 don't talk. Don't talk to your sister like that. Don't talk to your brother. You, you, you say you're sorry. You, you ask them to forgive you, right? We're, we're doing that all the time. And then all of a sudden they hear us or see us get peeved with our wife, right? And we, we don't say anything. And they're like, well, that's." they might not say it. Hopefully they're respectful enough not to say it, but in their minds they're probably struggling with the hypocrisy of all that. We don't want to put our kids in that situation where they have to wrestle through, work through that hypocrisy because we're too proud to confess our sin and ask for forgiveness. And so, all that to say, that was all for free. This is just, um, you know, Ken unplugged this morning talking about marriage. But, but what I want to give you, and I probably don't have time to do this, but I'm going to try it anyway. I want to give you the top 10 principles for a marriage. That brings pleasure to God and pleasure to you. Ten principles for a marriage that brings pleasure to God and pleasure to you, that glorifies God and gratifies you. And I really don't want this to become a series, okay? So I'll try to go through this quickly. I'll talk fast, you listen fast, and uh, we'll call Pizza Hut to bring in lunch or something. I don't know. Okay, here we go. Number one, number one, be sure to marry a committed, like-minded Christian. I mean, we just got to start with the obvious, right? Be sure to marry a committed, like-minded Christian. 1 Corinthians 7, 39, Paul talks about marriage in that chapter, and he could not make it any clearer when he said, uh, for those um, that are going to get remarried, he, makes, he, he lays down the principle here um, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. In other words, that God's will, God's intention is that we should only marry another Christian. Of course, you're familiar with 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14. This is the passage about being unequally yoked. Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness or what harmony has Christ with Belial or what is a believer in common with an unbeliever. So God never intended a believer to be married to an unbeliever because they're spiritually incompatible. They're going in two totally different directions. They have two totally different goals and passions for life. And unless both partners are fully devoted followers of Christ, they'll never fully experience the intimacy and the oneness that God intended for them in a marriage relationship. And we've talked about this before, the marriage triangle. You've got the husband, you've got the wife, and, and, and here they are trying to come together and, and uh, uh, it's not happening. So they've got to have a common goal. What's the goal? And that's Christ. And as the husband pursues Christ and as the wife pursues Christ, what happens? They come together. Well, if you've got one spouse pursuing Christ and the other one pursuing the world, they're going in opposite directions. They're never going to come together. And so the best way to achieve and maintain intimacy with our spouse is to maintain intimacy with our Savior. And for as long as I've been married, I've noticed, I mean, you could take this to the bank every time. My relationship with Kelly always parallels my relationship with God. I mean, if you were to graph my relationship with God, and, and, and when I'm growing and learning and, and, and maturing, man, my, re- my marriage is doing the same thing. But when I'm like, you know, kind of maybe not doing good in my relationship with the Lord, guess what? I'm not doing good in my relationship with Kelly. If I drift from Christ, I will drift from her. When I'm close to Christ, I'm close to her. That's why the number one piece of evidence, or I should evidence, piece of advice that, that I give the couples in premarital counseling is, you know what, you want to tell you a secret to a great marriage? Have your quiet time every day. Spend time in the word and prayer every day, pursuing your relationship with Christ and your love for each other will feed off of that love for Christ. Make Christ your first love and uh, your second love will take care, of its, take care of itself. I know some of you may be here And you know the pain and the heartache of being married to an unbeliever. And maybe it's because you ignored or disobeyed God's word and you married an unbeliever because you wanted to or because you didn't care about what God's word said at that time in your life. Or maybe maybe it's because you've come to know Christ since you've been married and your spouse has yet to come to Christ. Well, the good news is that the Bible gives some very clear instruction for people in your situation. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 24, Paul said, let each of you remain with God in that condition in which he was called, remain as you are. In other words, this is not like, oh, I became, I, I realized now I, 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 I sinned, I disobeyed God, I, I married the wrong person, so I, I need to get divorced because I didn't marry a Christian. No, you, you remain as you are. In fact, Paul gives you uh, some incentive to remain as you are. In First Corinthians 7, he says in verse um, 10, But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. If she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Why? For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. And so God may use you to win over your unbelieving husband. Spouse, in fact, Peter gives us advice how to do that. First Peter chapter three verse one, he says, "In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, i.e., not saved, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. In other words, as they watch your life, they'll be convicted of their sin and their need of Christ." They'll see how your life has been gloriously transformed by the gospel. They'll want what you have. Husbands, you might be in that situation. What do we do? Well, it says you husbands in the same way. Live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she's a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Pursue your wife. Prize your wife. Love her like Christ loves you and you God may use that that pursuit, that prioritizing of your wife. She sees that she is the most important thing to you apart from Christ to draw her to Christ. And so the bottom line here is that in order for a marriage, in order for a marriage to last, it must be built on the right foundation. And that foundation is not trust. Typically we hear that. Well, what's, uh, the, the key to every good, you know, foundation of every good is trust. No, it's not. It's faith in Christ. Trust in Christ. Maybe that would be a, a way you could say it. Uh, because I think the point there is, um, listen, if, if all of a sudden somebody does something, they're unfaithful, and you can't trust them anymore, what happens to your marriage? Trust just went out the window. Well, it, trust may have gone out the window, and that may be something that has to be earned back, but you still got, if you have, if you have Christ, you still have the foundation. You're. I mean, that... That infidelity may have wiped out your marriage like a, like a hurricane or a tornado. Nothing's left but the slab. But you still got the slab to rebuild on. And that slab is Jesus Christ, the foundation of a God-honoring, self-gratifying marriage. Number two, live in dependence on the Holy Spirit. Live in dependence on the Holy Spirit. If you know Ephesians well, you know that right before Paul launches into this discussion on marriage, he talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is Ephesians 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, or be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And if you think about how we're drowning in A a sea of information on marriage today. I mean, you got seminars and books and conferences and counselors and, listen, all these things, as good as they are, as helpful as they might be for ideas and hints and tips for improving your marriage, there is one key principle if we overlook, none of these resources will ever result in true lasting change, and that is who? The Holy Spirit. You've got to have the Holy Spirit in you. And the only way our marriages will be transformed into what God wants them to be is if the, both the husband and the wife are filled with and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Aren't you glad that God didn't expect us to try to figure out life and marriage in particular on our own and to do it in our own strength? No, He graciously provided us with a what was, what is the Holy Spirit called? A helper. You have a built-in marriage counselor, lives with you, in your house, lives in your heart, in your wife's heart, your husband's heart. He's there. And he's coming alongside you 24-7, 365, to help you be all that God wants you to be. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. And Paul goes on and describes what A person looks like who's under the control of the Spirit. Just by way of example, verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody with our heart to the Lord. And so there's joy uh, in your heart when the Spirit's filling you and controlling you. Uh, Secondly, there's a gratitude, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus to God, even the Father. And then finally, he says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So there's joyfulness, there's thankfulness, but then there's submissiveness. And this is interesting, guys. Before Paul ever got to wives submitting to us, he talks about us submitting to one another. And this is is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit produces in our lives. This, This mutual submission, putting essentially each other in front of ourselves, laying aside our rights and our Privileges and um, our demands, sacrificing our desires, submitting our will to our spouses, while serving them rather than having them serve us—that's the idea here. And with that, he 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 launches into this thing about husbands and wives. But don't miss the Holy Spirit. I mean, just think about the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians chapter five, verse twenty-two. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That sounds like a marriage manual to me. I mean, if any of those things are lacking, you're going to have some problems in your marriage. And listen, that's the stuff of marriage right there. That's, the, that's what makes or breaks a marriage. The love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentle self-control. man. And you can't have those things if you don't have the Spirit. And really, some of the reason or the one reason why some of you might be struggling in your marriage is because you may be saved, you may be a Christian, but you're living in the flesh. You're not depending on the Spirit. You're not prayerful. And submissive, yielding your life. Lord, help me. The first waking thought, Lord, help me. If I don't have your spirit controlling me today, I'm going to sin and I'm going to mess up this marriage. I need your help. I need your spirit. So, depend on the Holy Spirit. Number three, follow God's blueprint for marriage. Follow God's blueprint for marriage. Paul quotes Genesis two twenty four here. Uh, in this passage on marriage for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh by the way this is the only statement about marriage in the bible that's repeated four times so this is it i mean this is the blueprint if there's no other passage in the bible that you ever remember about marriage this is the one to remember and of course this was when god god spoke this when when he performed the first wedding in the garden of eden when when he brought Adam and Eve together. But notice he didn't say, for this reason Adam shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to Eve. He made it generic. This was a a general statement. In other words, that, that Adam and Eve's marriage was simply a blueprint for every other marriage that would come after them. And there's three basic elements here involved in a biblical marriage. There's leaving, there's cleaving, and Just to make it rhyme, weaving. We're to leave our father and mother, establish a new relationship with our spouse, independent of our parents. And so our relationship with our mate has to become the top priority, It becomes the primary relationship because it is a permanent relationship. Our relationship with our parents is a a temporary relationship and therefore it's a secondary relationship. So we need to leave, we also need to cleave or or make a lifelong commitment where we covenant together, promise to stick together no matter what, just take divorce out of your vocabulary altogether. And I think the reason why divorce is so awful, it's so painful, is because it's not just tearing apart a family, it's tearing apart two souls that have been joined together as one. And that's what marriage is. Kent Hughes says it well in his book, Disciplines of Godly Man, that marriage is an exchange of souls where everything in our lives is laid bare before each other. We're totally open and transparent with one another without fear or shame. You remember it says in uh, Genesis 2.25, and they were naked but unashamed. Typically, what the first thing that comes to our minds in light of that, when we think about the one flesh, the two shall become one flesh, we think about the sexual union between a husband and wife, which is part of what that means. But as meaningful and fulfilling as that is, it is merely a physical picture or an expression of the total oneness and intimacy that a couple experiences within marriage. And I think a, a couple's physical intimacy... Is one of the best indicators of their overall intimacy. And and they mentioned this this weekend, and I thought it was such a great reminder. Sex serves as a thermometer rather than a thermostat. In other words, it it can't control whether your marriage is good or bad. It simply records whether or not your marriage is good or bad, it indicates how it's going. it's, It's kind of taking the temperature, it's not controlling the temperature. And I wrote this down in my notes. And guys, we all need to take this to heart. If our wives don't feel close to us emotionally, they won't feel like being close to us physically. You can take that to the bank. Okay? If your wife doesn't feel close to you emotionally, mentally, she's not going to feel like being close to you physically. And sadly, that's why so many couples end up living two separate lives. They just get disconnected. And they, they fail to pursue this one fleshness, this mingling of souls, if you will. Number four, fulfill your God given role in the marriage relationship. Fulfill your God given role in the marriage relationship. Of course, you're familiar with this wives being subject to your own husbands um, as to the Lord. Submitting to your husband like the church submits to Christ and then husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. I think one of the things that causes so many problems in marriages is either an ignorance of or disobedience to the biblical roles and responsibilities assigned to husbands and wives. And, and so families are, marriages are dysfunctional. I don't appreciate the, all the psychological baggage that goes with that term dysfunctionality it's, it's, it seems to be more of an excuse for sinful behavior, but I think it's an accurate description that, that when married couples experience conflict, it, it typically can be traced back to the fact that someone failed to fulfill their function. And it's, it's, it's really simple, not easy to do. Husbands, God says that our primary responsibility is to be the loving leader. To love our wives unconditionally, selflessly, and sacrificially. And, and Christ's love for us is the example. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were really nice and easy to love, he died for us. Is that what it says? No. When we were yet sinners, and typically what happens is, right, when, when we are in a situation and our wives aren't very lovely at that moment, instead of moving into their life, we run away from their life. It's like, okay, fine, you're on your own, I'm out of here. And you fix yourself, and, and when you're ready, you come tell me you're fixed, and I'll come back and love you again. And it's so unchrist like, right? Christ pursued us when we were at our worst. And so we need to be the loving leaders. And ladies, God's word says that you're to be the submissive or respectful helper. And the church's submission to to the headship and authority of Christ is to be your example. Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman, 1 Corinthians 11.3. And that's not an easy task because sometimes we as husbands hurt you. We fail you. We may not be worthy of your respect, and yet in the same way that God has placed Christ as Lord over every person, he sovereignly placed your husband in a position of authority over you. And, and, and there's times when you're not going to feel like submitting to him, even in the same way sometimes husbands don't feel like loving their wives. Listen, you have to understand, this is a choice. Love is a choice. Submission is a choice. Respect is a choice. I'm either going to obey what God's word says or I'm going to disobey And we've got all sorts of ways of justifying why we're not going to love right now and why we're not going to submit or respect right now. But I love the simplicity of verse 33 here, if you're still in Ephesians 5. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Somebody wrote a book years ago called Love and Respect. Never read the book. Some of you may have read the book. Tell me about it. Was it good or not? Uh, let me know afterwards. But I love the title. Biblical, right there, love and respect. And, you know, it's something that Kelly and I have been talking about and praying about, that, that, that what is it that, let's just simplify the chaos of marriage. What does it all come down to? What, what, do, what, do, what do women want? Women want to be loved. What do guys want? Guys want to be respected. And so it really comes down to, guys, are you adoring your wife? Not worshiping her like we would adore Christ, right? But are you adoring, is your wife adored? Does she feel adored by you? And, and ladies, does your husband feel admired? Does he feel respected? Do you look up to him, that you respect him, that you honor him? And so it really comes down to that, that we need to work on these things. Men adoring our wives, women admiring our husbands. Number five, seek to humbly and selflessly serve your spouse. Seek to humbly, selflessly serve your spouse. Now we're getting down to the, to the nitty-gritty here. Mark 10, 45, it says, Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to, what? Be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom many. Gentlemen, why do you come home from work? Do you come home to be served? Hey, woman, where's my whatever, right? <laughs> Hopefully you're not that... Obnoxious, but maybe that's the mindset. We come home, and I've had a hard day of work, and I'm tired, and I'm coming home to be served, and I'm expecting to have a good meal, and just to be able to relax, and and my wife's going to serve me, and, and 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 same thing. The the wife's sitting there, coming home. I can't wait for him to come home because I'm about to pull my hair out, and these kids are driving me crazy, and I can't wait for him to come home and provide some relief. And, and so we're expecting, right? The wife's expecting her husband to. She's expecting to be served as soon as he walks in the door. He's going to be serving her, and. What happens when two people walk into the same room expecting to be served? World War III, usually. I mean, that's a, con- that's a conflict waiting to happen right there. And so how do you change that? Well, have the mentality of a servant, that I am not here to be served, but to serve. Philippians 2, 3, and 4, probably the, the most important verses that any married couple should memorize, put to memory, and quote all the time, do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, consider others more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. Paul pinpointed the two biggest problems in marriage. You know what they are? Selfishness and pride. I guarantee you, anytime you get sideways with one another, cross-threaded with one another, in your marriage relationship, someone or both of you is being selfish or prideful or both. And usually it's everyone's to blame there. And there's like yellow cards, flags flying, right? Everybody's being selfish. Everybody's being prideful. It's typically not just a one-sided deal. But can you imagine what it would be like, what kind of marriage you would have if you treated your spouse as more important than yourself? That if we did what was best for our husband or wife, what what if we put them first and cared more about their interest than our own? I mean, that that would be a game changer. That would revolutionize a marriage. Really, it comes down to this. Listen, the more prideful and selfish you are, the more problems you're going to have in your marriage. And the more humble and selfless you are, the less problems you're going to have in your marriage. Number six, make it your number one ambition to please God and your spouse. Make it your number one ambition to please God and your spouse. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul said, I make it my ambition, whether at home or at home, to be pleasing to the Lord. Bottom line is, you're not here to please your spouse, you're here to please God. And you can put your head on the pillow at night and rest easy knowing that if you've pleased the Lord in the way you've treated your spouse, even if they are still hacked off at you <laughs> and, and there's still tension between you, you can pill your head and know, Lord, thank you for helping me to respond in a humble, selfless way and to serve them and love them, submit to them, respect them, whatever it is that you know is pleasing to the Lord, That needs to be your goal. Your goal can't be to fix your marriage, fix your spouse. You need to fix you and say, okay, how can I be more pleasing? Yeah, clearly my spouse is not pleasing to the Lord right now. But what about me? Am I pleasing to the Lord? I need to work on being pleasing to the Lord. And um, 1 Corinthians 7, you remember this passage, 1 Corinthians 7 talks about that uh, a single person kind of can run fast and free because they don't have to think about pleasing their spouse, right? But Paul assumes, and it's a good assumption, it's a right assumption, in verse 32, One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. That's all you need to focus on as a single person, how you can please the Lord. But if you're married, not only do you need to worry about pleasing the Lord, you also have to think about how you may please your wife. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, and she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. So it's right and good that once you have set your goal, your ultimate goal is to be pleasing to the Lord, Second to that, your second goal should be, okay, how can I please my husband? How can I please my wife? And I've often told couples, hey, I'll give you a challenge. I want you to come up with a list. Draw a piece, take a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle, and, and on one half say, please me, displease me. And you write down all the things that your husband does that pleases you and all the things he does that displeases you and and, and husband, you write down everything that she does that pleases you and everything that displeases her. And guess what? Exchange pieces of paper. Now there's no mystery. That's called revelation. How do we know what pleases or displeases God? He wrote it down for us. He said, this pleases me and this displeases me. So why don't we provide some revelation, right, to our spouses and say, hey, just want to, want you to know, this is what pleases me, this is what displeases me. Now, obviously, don't use those pieces of paper to you know, jab each other, hold them over each other's head, hey, you're not doing this, you're not doing... No, you need to do this humbly and graciously and in a way that say, I want to help you understand me better so we can serve one another in a better way. Number seven, focus on your sin rather than your spouse's sin. Focus on your sin rather than your spouse's sin. Matthew 7, why are you trying to take the speck out of your wife's eye, your husband's eye, when you got a big old log in your own eye? And that's typically what marriage counseling looks like. If you were in there behind closed doors with me, it's like this. Well, she does this, and he does this, and you've had those conversations in your living room. Well, you're, yeah, and you're, but you're not, right? It's, we're pointing fingers. So, just conclude that you are the worst sinner in your house. That you're a far worse sinner than your wife will ever be. That you're a far worse sinner than your husband will ever be. You're the worst sinner in the house. And that will help you let love cover what? A multitude of sins. And it's typically not necessarily sin that drives a wedge between us. It's things like Our weaknesses, the weaknesses of your spouse, or the differences, just simple man and woman differences, bug us, frustrate us, irritate us, inconvenience us. And I think if you were to be honest, most husbands wish their wives were more like them, like a guy. Why do we have to keep having these deep conversations? Let's just eat, let's go somewhere and eat something or kill something together. That's kind of how guys relate, right? Like, why do you keep making me have these deep conversations? I don't like this. This inconveniences me. And, and I think most wives would say, you know what? I wish my husband was, was more like me. I wish he was more like a girl. Because we could sit there and sip our coffee and talk and have these deep conversations and the time would just fly by. And right? And right? It's like, listen, guys, you don't want to be married to another guy and gals, you don't want to be married to another gal. That's not how God designed it. Rather, we need to Rather than letting these things embitter us toward each other, we need to embrace them as God's tool to sanctify us and make us more like Christ. It's sandpaper. sometimes feels like it, right? Sandpaper. but God uses that to, to, to soften our rough edges. Number eight, we're going to get through this. I trust, trust me. we're going to go quick. Number eight: communicate regularly, honestly and graciously. Communicate regularly, honestly, and graciously. In the previous passage in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul uh, says this in verse 25, therefore lay aside falsehood, so speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. He also goes on to say, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such as the word is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that we'll give grace to those who hear. Listen, I don't need to tell you, survey says one of the biggest problems in marriage is communication or lack thereof. And it's weird how when you first started dating and in the early days of your marriage, you had all this stuff to talk about and it seemed like you never had enough time to talk about all that there was to talk about and you didn't want to have to say goodnight and and now you're like, goodnight. (laughs) And you got nothing to talk about. It's like, where did all that stuff go? And, and so you got to work at that, right? And we need to speak. It says speak. You can't clam up. You've got to be open and honest about what you're thinking, what you're feeling. Listen, your spouse can't read your mind. And so we need to share what's, what we're thinking and feeling and what we're struggling with. And, and then we need to respond in ways that are edifying, right? No, don't, don't, don't tear down your spouse with unwholesome words. Build them up. Be gracious in the way you respond. I and mean, That's t- tough sometimes, right? To be gracious when your spouse is saying something to you and you might not like what they're saying to you to respond in a gracious way. They're just being honest with you that, you know what, there's an area that you need to excel still more in. Obviously, they're maybe not saying it that biblically or with that tone, right? And so it is a little harder to respond, but the point is we need to be gracious. Number eight, resolve conflict on a daily basis. Maybe I'm getting my numbers mixed up. I might have more than 10. Sorry about that. Whichever number this is, resolve conflict on a daily basis. Right there in Ephesians 4, what does it say? Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. In other words, never go to bed mad. Make sure that you resolve conflict on a daily basis because guess what? Tomorrow there's going to be some more trouble. Bible says every day has trouble of its own, so you do not want to have to deal with residual conflict. Compounded interest, that's a good thing, right, when it comes to your money, but you do not want compounded conflict. Because I've seen what it does. There's a couple who will sit in my office, and they've been married 20 years, and they hate each other's guts. Why? Because they've let conflict go unresolved and they just kept putting a brick and another brick and another brick and another brick and another brick and and they had this huge wall between them because they didn't resolve conflict. And so the simplest way to resolve conflict is to say, honey, I was wrong. Would you please forgive me? And for you to say, I forgive you. And that's a conversation that needs to be going on daily daily. In your home, if you're big, as big sinners as Kel and I, you're asking each other to for forgiveness every day, maybe multiple times a day. But that transaction needs to be happening, and, and I think the key to a good marriage is two good forgivers. Listen, you got two sinners under one roof. You're going to be sinning against each other a lot. You need to learn how to forgive one another. Resolve that conflict. Move on. Put it behind you. Don't keep a list of all the wrongs that have been done against you. How about this? Maybe I'll just catch up with my numbers here. If I'm doing this right, number 10. and nine 10? Yeah, okay. I skipped over one because I don't know where that came from. But anyway, I'll slip this in. It's like nine and a half. Manage your expectations. Just read Luke 6, 27 to 35 about loving your enemy, expecting nothing in return. Some of you would do better if you started treating your spouse like your worst enemy than your husband or wife. Because then it'd be easy, right? Because you love your enemy. You don't expect them to do anything in return. But you do it anyway because God commands you and you prove that you are a child of God by being able to love your enemies like God loves us, his enemies, but our husband and wife, yeah, they, we should do this and they should do this. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Right? We expect them to reciprocate. Well, forget about it. Treat them like your enemy. Don't expect anything. Might be easier. Okay, number 10. Persevere through the storms that are bound to come. Persevere through the storms that are bound to come. I love, God, God knew. God knew that life was gonna be difficult And things like marriage would be challenging. Um, And there would be times we'd want to quit, throw in the towel, get a divorce. That's what that essentially is. Galatians, what's what's at the root of that? I, I would suggest to you Galatians 6 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. I think some couples just lose heart in doing good, they grow weary. And that's why we need to remember Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Listen, you may be married to a hostile person. They may be miserable to live with. But no matter how hostile, no matter what it is that you're having to endure by being married to this person, consider him, Christ, who has endured far worse for you so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I would um, assume that most of you, when you got married said something like this. You you promised to be faithful to your spouse for what? Better, for worse, for richer or poor in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow. Why do we say that? Why is that part of like a traditional vows? Well, hello. Anybody that's been married knows that that's, the kind of promise you got to make because there is going to be all sorts of stuff. You have no idea when you're standing at the altar what may befall you financially or, or physically or, you know, we, we assume that, the, the, that this marriage from here from this day forward, I mean, the easiest day of your married life will be your wedding day. Don't mean to put a damper on those that you guys are getting married on. I'm not going to do this. Why would I get married? This is a, no, no, this is great. It is, it's a great thing. Um, but, but they we assume that our marriage will be filled with ups and downs, and good times and bad times, and failures and successes, and agony, and ecstasy, and fighting, and making up, and and so that's why you have to be a, a man or woman of your word. Hey, I promised, I told you that whether it was good or bad whether you were healthy or sick, whether we had a lot of money or no money, right? Whether this was a happy marriage or not so happy marriage, that we're sticking together. Listen, I wish I could tell you that I, that the thought about leaving my wife has never crossed my mind. I wish I could say that. I've never, I've never, that thought has never, no, it's crossed my mind a hand, thankfully a handful of times just a handful of times, where the conflict was so intense at the moment and at the end of the day, it was probably really silly and stupid how it all started, but it seems so intense and you forget about all the wonderful things you've ever experienced together as a husband and wife. It's like all you can see is this problem and it just seems to overwhelm you and you're like, you know what, I'm out of here, I don't need this. But by God's grace, neither of us have never packed a bag or... We're backed out of the garage. We might have been in the car, but never backed out, right? Just being honest, okay? And so what we found is when the pressures, the problems of life bear down upon you and you feel like giving up and throwing in the towel and walking away from your marriage, that's, listen, Satan is tempting you at that point to break your promise that you made to your spouse on your wedding day. And that's when you need to get back in focus and get in the word, get on your knees And when you do that, God comes through. God intervenes and he helps you work it out. You may remember me telling the story of a dear, precious saint named Peg Booker. She was a member of our church when we first started years ago. And she was in her, man, in her 90s. She was the first uh, person that we did a funeral service for here in our first building. Even before we had a um, uh, our first worship service, we had a funeral service. The first service in this church was a funeral service. And I t- told other pastors, we're "Like, man, that's kind of depressing. That's not a good sign." No, I said, "This you don't know. If you knew Peg Booker, you'd say this is the I can't think of a better way to to inaugurate this building than to send this precious saint into glory." And so she was an old Scottish Presbyterian, and she'd come to church with her Bible and you know she said i i like you cuz you preach the bible and i want you to preach at my funeral and and uh, so i'd go over and and see her from time to time and talk with her and she would uh, sit on the couch in her kids' heart uh, kids kids living room and she was living with her kids at the time she'd been widowed longer than she was been, been married some 40 years she was a widow and she never got remarried and she would sit there and talk about her husband as if he had died yesterday it was so precious and i was just taken in by this this precious woman and this, this relationship that she shared with her husband, and, and, and even though it had been years ago, and, and, and I said to her one time, I said, Peg, you know, I hope, I hope that Kel and I can have a marriage like that someday, because it seems like, you know, we, sometimes we get sideways when we fight a little bit, and, and she perked up, and she was sitting on the couch next to each other, and she scooched over, and she put her hand on my knee, and she said, oh, Ken, me and my husband, we fought like cats and dogs, and then she said with a glimmer in her eye, but making up is sure fun. <laughs> and it was like the heavens opened and the angels began to sing. And I was like, yes, you go, Peg. And, uh, but it was just so, that was just life. That was down to earth real. And I've never forgot that. And I so appreciate that testimony, that legacy that she left to Kelly and I. And just her testimony, her example. Of a loving marriage. Listen, bottom line, listen, don't ever forget marriage is not about you. As soon as you forget that and you make marriage about you, you're going to start to have trouble. Guarantee. That's when the conflict's going to come. It's not about you, it's about Christ and his beauty and his glory and how we can provide the most beautiful representation of christ's love for us through our marriage that's what it's all about let's pray father thank you for this time lord while it's been an extended time i pray lord that uh, we would take in the truths of your word that would be helpful to our souls to our marriages whether the marriages that we're in right now or the marriages that these young people will be these children will be in the future lord we know your word doesn't return void and i pray that uh, you would just establish these principles in our hearts and our minds and that you would grant us grace to live them out. By your spirit we pray for your glory, that the marriages uh, of the people here at Lakeside Bible Church would preach the gospel, show the gospel every day in our neighborhoods, in our communities, even in our own home to our children we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.